this week, you're getting a peek at what you get for subscribing on Patreon. Part two of my conversation with Kevin Ewell on Assisted Dying, where he discusses how he's not really against suicide, and my five-year-old tells you the meaning of life. Sign up at $15 and get a free hard copy of my new book, Significant Emotions, about our culture's seeming obsession with emotions and mental health. This week, patrons get an exclusive lecture on how to spot lies, damned lies, and statistics. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley. But if people are demanding it, is it really that wrong then? If it's what people want. It's not wrong for the person to demand it. It's very understandable in many situations. The problem comes in not in somebody considering suicide, say, you know, the proverbial man teetering on the proverbial ledge. The problem comes when we come along and offer them a push. I think that's the obscenity of it. It's not so much the person who's in, you know, understandably really in un, un, all sorts of suffering, mostly existential suffering, it has to be said, because pain is not in the top five reasons why Oregonians actually go for assisted suicide. But it's all, you know, you can understand somebody requesting somebody to help them to die. What I can't understand is somebody agreeing to say, yes, your life is so valueless that I will help to kill you. And I think that's the wrongness of it. It's not so much the demand, it's the way we respond to that demand. The kind of background of our conversation is what language do we use to even talk about this? So, um, you know, I recently did a BBC radio interview where that was the first question. They said, like, they deferred to me, hey, Dr. Frawley, what do you suggest we call this? And I, I thought I'll concede this one. Um, because I feel like that debate's been lost. And I said, fine, we, you know, we'll call it assisted dying. I don't want to get into a discussion about framing. But was I wrong to do that? Is it important not to concede what we name this? Well, I've come to that way of thinking because I, I like you, um, with every discussion I had, used assisted dying when I was writing in the newspaper uh, to prevent, you know, partially so the editor wouldn't just simply correct it because that's what tends to happen. But I think it's very, very important actually to say, look, we are being sold a bill of goods here. This is, is, you know, when you call it assisted dying, you confuse people. And what really brought me to this thinking was that there was a couple of polls, one in New Zealand, one in the UK that showed that most people think that assisted dying includes palliative care. They think that assisted dying also includes, for instance, voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. Both of these things are, of course, legal. But what those who are going for assisted dying are really trying to push is euthanasia and assisted suicide. It's not a helpful term, assisted dying. It's a deceptive term. And it tends to cover over what they're actually trying to accomplish. And that's why I object to it. And I'm, I, I think we're going to make a big push on this issue because I think People deserve, you know, we should start this whole discussion with honesty and honesty is this is either about suicide, you know, taking poison with the intent to die is still suicide, whether a doctor gives it to you or not. And it's about euthanasia, which is another thing. So it's, it's never clarifying, you know, it's certain terms, certain neologisms you can put up with if they actually are helpful. 
but this isn't helpful. It's entirely deceptive. So I think it's important to use the correct language and to make sure that people know that this is about killing. Now, when you say that in the public sphere, they'll say what you're really doing, you're not being precise in your language. You are scaremongering. Well, I don't think that it's scaremongering to call a spade a spade. I think, you know, whether the doctor hands you the gun and you shoot yourself or whether you shoot yourself with a gun, it's just, it's suicide. You know, people are arguing this. And in fact, you know, the good news is that a court in Australia has just ruled a very similar thing where somebody tried to get suicide. It, it, you know, it wasn't not to be called suicide. Um, it's a complex case that involves somebody trying to do telehealth, um, and, you know, do assisted suicide by telehealth. And he was suing the, the court to say, well, no, this isn't assisting a suicide. This is assisted dying. And the court rejected it because they said, well, it's very hard for us to argue that ingesting poison with the intent to die is anything other than suicide. And so I think that court is in our side. Also the American Association of Suicidology, they actually, from a point where they said that, no, we're defining suicide, not as assisted dying, assisted dying and, and, and suicide are different things. Now they've come out and said, no, this is actually suicide. And they've taken a neutral position on it. Uh, and so I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that this is pulling the wool over our eyes, you know, making something have a cuddly term does not change the reality. And I think we really need to face the reality on this issue. What's interesting about that um, anecdote that you just gave is that part of what part of what I find so interesting about this issue is that um, it's first of all, it's very difficult to, on the one hand, as a society, have a stance against suicide, right? That we want to prevent suicides. It's, it's interesting that these two, these like you have lobby groups that exist at the same time. One that's like, oh, we have to prevent suicide no matter what. And the other one's like, let's open up suicide to everybody. Like, <laughs> This is make it as easy as possible. No, I'm being flippant, but you get the idea. Um, and it and you realize, like, uh, I made a joke on Twitter actually, where you know Canada has a new suicide hotline where you dial nine eight eight, and I was like, well, in a few months it'll just take you to a doctor who'll do it for you. <laughs> There's that's your suicide hotline. You just get it more quickly. But um, it really shows that as a society, we're not necessarily against suicide. Uh, what we want is a bureaucratic process that controls it. Yeah, and this is really problematic. In fact, I'm not actually against suicide in some ways. So, you know, I would like to think that if I saw the proverbial man on the bridge, I would I would do something and stop them, even if they were going to do it the next day, simply because that's a virtuous act, and I think that's a a good thing to save lives. But on the other hand, there are noble suicides. There are good suicides. There are understandable suicides. Just as an example that I've been thinking about, I don't know whether you can include this or not, but this guy who went and threw acid on somebody, and then it looks like he's jumped off a bridge. I think higher of him if he actually has, because as Mark Twain once said, suicide is the most sincere form of self-criticism. And I think, you know, yes, if you impose that sentence upon, on yourself, that shows that you've actually got some understanding of the moral importance of what you've done and that you're taking responsibility for it. So in that essence, I'm not actually that, I'm not a, opposed to suicide, but what I insist, if the suicide has got to be one person's decision, it can't be 
a bureaucratic decision or a menu choice. Um, it has to be a profound and awe-inspiring act and a terrible act in, in many ways, but one that can have good consequences, but mostly doesn't really have good consequences. So I, you know, despite the fact that I began this by saying I was appalled by my friend's suicide because of the hurt that it, that it did, I'm not, I think there are some suicides, um, Captain Scott is another example of this, or Captain Oates, sorry, with the Scott expedition. If you're familiar with that story, then that is a good suicide. This is the, the difficulty of not being brought up in Britain. Um, <laughs> Captain Oates, Titus Oates, was with the Scott expedition, which of course went to unsuccessfully to the South Pole um, using the usual uh, British unfamiliarity with cold weather and taking ponies and various other uh, accoutrements to, to the South Pole, which was, of course, fatal. Oates very famously said he, he had wounded his foot and he was slowing down the rest of the team and they would not leave him behind, but he knew he was, you know, his sacrifice was necessary. So he very famously wrote a note and said, I'm going outside for a walk. I may be some time and then disappeared. And of course, he's a great hero for doing this, despite the fact that everybody else did die in the end. But you know, it's self-sacrifice. That's a suicide, but that's a good suicide. And I think there are good suicides. And one, one thing I really hate is the idea that suicide in person's own decision is a bad thing. Wild suicide is bad, whereas institutional suicide, which is what we're talking about, is a good thing. And I think that's also a very bad aspect of this. You know, that's a conclusion that I've come to over and over and over again, where you have these movements that sort of complain about, right, rightfully complain about the difficulty of a particular thing. And so they campaign to make it easier. And then you realize, well, I feel like the difficulty of it was society's way of, of controlling it in a way <laughs> that maybe some things that are big and life altering for everyone around you and yourself, depending on what the issue is, um, they should be difficult. <laughs> And, yeah. and while we have empathy for people, um, making these enormous things easier is actually a lot worse. Well, yes. And it's also, it's, it's trying to cut out difficult parts of life. It's really essentially about life and not about death. It's another self-deceptive thing I hate about the whole assisted suicide movement is that it, it pretends death lasts longer. You know, oh, we just don't want to have a difficult death. Well, no, what you're saying is, you don't want the end part of your life to be difficult. But of course, you know, A, that's open-ended. Nobody can predict exactly when it's going to happen. And of course, these prognoses of six months to live are right a third of the time and wrong the rest of the time. It's, it's a guess. Everybody knows that um, in medicine. It's about, it's not to save a difficult death. It's to try and prevent the difficulties of life. And as somebody, when you get to my age and, and you will have seen people die and it's never easy, it's never a good thing. It's never positive. It's never this like lovely cuddly thing. Oh, it's so long, you know, and off like it, it, you're left with all sorts of other emotions and you are left with bits of that person in your psyche and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We can't cut out the difficult parts of life by simply killing people ahead of time. 
I think that's wrong for a society. It's wrong for the person. Elizabeth Kobler-Ross, who wrote um, on death and dying in the 60s, pioneering the, the whole movement, um, was she made the point she was opposed to assisted suicide because it robs an individual a part of their life. And, you know, Nadine Dory's not my favorite politician, perhaps, but she wrote very movingly in the paper about her husband's final months and how she had refused his, his uh, idea that he wanted to go to Switzerland to Dignitas to end his life early. And that he had told her that the final months of his life are the happiest he'd ever had. So, you know, how much are you going to cut out of that? Um, if, if you legalize assisted suicide and, and assisted dying, it's just trying to get rid of a difficult part of life. And it's something I think we, we have to face. I think I can imagine you saying like, there are some good suicides. People being like, oh, but then, when it's part of this bureaucratic process, they're okay with that. And I was going to ask you, well, why do you think that is? Um, but then I, I felt like I would like to partially answer it, which is myself, which is part of medicalization is also about subjecting a particular aspect of life to control and to free it from unpredictability. So this is the old argument that feminists used to make against medicalizing childbirth was that, and especially against the overuse of C-sections, is that you are basically trying to predict something that is unpredictable. And that makes it really difficult to run a business, to like have a job, because you don't know, am I going to give birth like tomorrow or whatever? But if you can schedule it, then the doctor, the obstetrician knows that they have to come in, this sort of thing. So if you don't know how much time you have left, it, that's a very difficult way to live. Right. But if you can schedule it, you know, I've got exactly this much time. And that is part of that's part of the benefit of subjecting life to a medicalized process, to bureaucratizing every minute from the cradle to the grave. And I'm wondering, so is that do you think that that might be part of the reason why people are OK with it, that it allows for a certain amount of predictability? Uh, that's a very interesting observation, not one I've heard before, but it does kind of uh, connect with the type of person who takes an assisted suicide in Oregon. And they tend to be very organized people. They tend to be sort of upper middle class and used to being in control. And you can imagine, as you've just said, um, oh yeah, let me check. No, I'm dying next Tuesday. So let's bring it forward. By the, you know, like you just think that sort of horrible office, um, mentality of, of, of meetings and everything else like that. Yes. It's scheduled death. And I think that's, um, an interesting way of, of, of sort of thinking about it is that it's, it's people trying to take the uncertainty away from their own schedule, if you like. And I think it's, it's a, I mean, I'm going to write about this in the future. I think there's, there's also a, a concept of alienation that's, um, involved in this whole thing. In that people are alienated away from their, their existence in a way that they, they, you know, um, I was at the beginning of, of this discussion, but, um, I think there's something to Marx's theory of alienation that, you know, we are alienated from our species beings, so we're willing to let them die, um, in these kind of circumstances. And, you know, we, we no longer do that very basic community thing of providing protection for people, um, against others, but sometimes against themselves as well. 
you know, it's, it's, we provide protection for our fellow human beings. We regard them all as equal from a baby right up to um, a very elderly person. It's, we consider death a bad thing. And I think that's being really challenged. People are not seeing death as a bad thing. One of the interesting things I've seen on my Twitter feed is that antinatalists are starting to really come and argue with me. Uh, do you know what antinatalists are? Unfortunately, I am aware of them and they also don't leave me alone. <laughs> well, it's, I think there is a background to that and they're only explicating what Peter Singer, for instance, has, has really talked about in the past and what other, there's another philosopher from South Africa, I can't remember his name, but he also is an antinatalist, not antinatalist in when I remember back to my own kids being birth, being born, antinatalism thought was, was something else, but, um, it was, yes, this idea that there are too many human beings in the world and that, and that human life is not a good thing and that the world would be better off with, uh, out human beings on it, I think is, is something that we need to connect to this discussion as well, because this is essentially saying, uh, parts of life as not being worth living and that we're, we'd all be better off without those parts of life. And it, it's, it's only a, a couple of logical steps to say, well, all of life, all of human life is not worth living. And, and this is why I think it, a lot of this gets passed off as a kind of progressive, like this is just the logical conclusion of progressivism or, or liberalism, right? The, about, it's about autonomy and it's about the individual making this ultimate choice. But I actually think it's the opposite. And that's what made me change my mind, that I think it's the death of the progressive project is the death of a belief in life being worth living and that that and this life being the only thing that, that is the moral standard. This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom by Martin Hagland, 2019. The sense of finitude, the sense of the ultimate fragility of everything we care about is at the heart of what I call secular faith. To have secular faith is to be devoted to a life that will end, to be dedicated to projects that can fail or break down. Ranging from the concrete, how we approach funerals, to the general, what makes a life worth living, I will show how secular faith expresses itself in the ways we mourn our loved ones, make commitments, and care about a sustainable world. I call it secular faith because it is devoted to a form of life that is bounded by time. In accordance with the meaning of the Latin word secularis, to have secular faith is to be dedicated to persons or projects that are worldly and temporal. Secular faith is the form of faith that we all sustain in caring for someone or something that is vulnerable to loss. We all care for ourselves, for others, for the world in which we find ourselves, and care is inseparable from the risk of loss. From a religious perspective, our finitude is seen as a lamentable condition that ideally should be overcome. This is the premise with which I take issue. I seek to show that any life worth living must be finite and requires secular faith. Secular faith is committed to persons and projects that may be lost, to make them live on for the future. Far from being resigned to death, a secular faith seeks to postpone death and improve the conditions of life. Can you say that again? The meaning of life is us. What does that mean? 
We are the meaning of life. Like us in this room? No, like us on the world. Like tools! Get off my cow! But you were making a, a very interesting argument about alienation. Um, do you think that there's a connection between alienation and antinatalism? Could you ex explicate that connection a bit more? I mean, because, yes, you know, as Marx made the point uh, that, you know, you're, you're disconnected with your species being. And I think that's expressed in, in some animal rights talk and in the antinatalists, you know, where they hate their species being. And it's this sort of. Um, so they're, it's human beings being alienated from parts of themselves, really, because we are part of our human, uh, of our species being, we, we are actually part of our bodies. And this is another aspect that I think is interesting in relation to this issue is that there's a sort of, oh, my body is failing me and, uh, therefore I need to get rid of my body by killing myself. And there's not an appreciation that the body and soul, so to speak, are one and that you're not going to survive uh, your body. And it, people sing this over physical idea of what life is about rather than, and this is what, of course, the disabled groups are very opposed to is that they, you know, people say, oh, I'd rather be dead than have somebody help me go to the toilet, you know, and you can <laughs> And when people make those arguments, like, I'd rather be dead than, than be in a wheelchair. Like, cause you, you, yeah. that's how much you value people's lives who are in a wheelchair. It's not some profound statement. Yes. And it's an over physical thing. It's, it's so despicable. And of course, this is picked up by, uh, this is why every disabled group opposes um, assisted suicide, because they know this is the spirit that it's going from. It's like people going, oh, I can't stand my body falling to bits. And so therefore, you know, I'm going to kill myself and get you to help me to kill myself. Cause you know, you wouldn't really value being in my position either, uh, if I was like that. And of course, this is a great slap in the face to disabled people who value their lives and, you know, so, and as do dying people, this is the other thing. This is why the hospice movement is opposed. It's because the hospice movement shows that people are still living even as they're dying. You know, it's about the life you have left, not about um, what's going to happen or anything else like that. So it is, it is posed in, in these kind of terms, but I think people are also, as I say, I think it's alienated from, from one's fellows as well It's this inside out morality, whereby what I think about existence and life and the world and the universe is much more important than what anybody else thinks rather than what's happened in the past, which is that morality is seen as something between us. Whereas now people even define it as, no, 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 these are my morals. You can, actually, do you know what morals are? Morals exist between people. They don't exist inside your head. But there's that side of the alienation thing as well, and that people are alienated from the, the whole. They don't understand the whole. They don't understand the relationship to the past. They don't understand the relationship to the future, that we have obligations in relation to the past that we have obligations in relation to the future. And that is being lost. That's what I hope to actually uh, write about in, in relation to 
assisted suicide and euthanasia. On the topic of Marx, um, <laughs> it's interesting this kind of the oh, way it's that. Red Marx to a sociologist. It's red black for a ball. Sorry. Um, but it, it, it just strikes me that you have this, the sneaking of a process and, and I suppose like a capitalist logic, if not profit into every aspect of life, which, you know, has been an ongoing process for a very long time, but you know, so that every aspect of your life becomes subject to a key performance indicator. And you can see this just blowing through everything. Like, you know, you can't have, you know, family now is a process. It's not like the smile you get from your child or whatever. It's like, it is a process of creating a, a citizen and a worker and, and woe betide the woman who doesn't take that seriously, who God forbid she wants to like enjoy her own life or enjoy her children's lives. It's like how, you know, you have to be saying this many words to the child before this age and you have to make sure you breastfeed because studies show that if you don't, no, 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 no. And it's like it becomes subject to these key performance indicators. And like death is the same way, like this idea of like a good death. On the outside of it, it sounds quite nice, right? Like quite progressive. But it's like on a scale of one to 10, how good was your death today? <laughs> I'm writing down what you're saying because key performance indicators is such a nice phrase that I will uh, use that because I think that's so true. But that's the way this yeah. whole thing was brought up. This is in historical terms. You can date the whole suggestion of euthanasia, if you discount, for instance, Sir Thomas More, who did actually uh, tout the idea, but it's unclear how or why he did. And it certainly didn't go over uh, very, very well. But, and what his point was, who knows, but the, the serious mm -hmm. proposal was put forward in 1870. That was the very first time that it was actually put forward. And much as, and it was put forward for a couple of reasons. First of all, because chloroform had been invented a couple, you know, 20 years, 10 something before. And so people could see the possibility of using chloroform in this way. But also it came about because I think people looked around and said, well, yes, uh, we, we've streamlined all of these parts of industry and looking upon people as being useless after a particular time. And I think it is very much connected to capitalism in many different ways, not just in the bureaucratic processes, which I think you're absolutely right about, but also in the whole concept of a human life as, as being either productive or non-productive and, uh, that, that's the extent of it. So one of the more frightening aspects that's happening at the moment is that a majority of Dutch people think that everybody over the age of 75 should be, uh, should be offered euthanasia. Uh, uh, why? Because they're not very productive, are they? They take up a lot of resources, don't they? Assisted Suicide, The Liberal Humanist Case Against Legalization, 2013, page 10. Consider one of the most popular pro-assisted suicide newspaper commentaries of recent times. Written by Melanie Reed, a journalist who became a paraplegic following a horse riding accident, and published in The Times, Britain's newspaper of record. The piece made the case for granting the very ill and the very incapacitated the right to die. It was hailed by assisted suicide campaigners and by secularist thinkers as the unanswerable case for the right to die. The final word, surely, on this hotly contested liberty to end our lives in periods of extreme physical ailment. However, amidst its pleas of choice and autonomy for the sick, 
Reed's piece contained the following extraordinarily revealing sentence. It is ridiculous that an educated society, facing an unaffordable explosion in dementia and age-related illness, is still prevaricating over assisted suicide. What is extraordinary about that sentence is, firstly, that it very clearly expresses an old-style euthanistic outlook. It expresses the idea that allowing sick and old people to kill themselves is important because there are too many of them, too many elderly folk with dementia, and they are unaffordable. The second striking thing is that this idea seems to have been readily accepted by the numerous campaigners and journalists who praised Reed's piece. Certainly, in their effusive promotion of the article, none of them sought to distance themselves from that sentence, suggesting either that they agree with it or that they do not consider the promotion of voluntary euthanasia on the basis that society cannot afford to look after certain people, in this case the old and mentally ill, to be remarkable or noteworthy. So it's, it's not specifically about the hee-hee-hee, we're going to take money from you. It's much more about the sort of mindset that looks at people as either economically productive or not productive. And a lot of the discussion at the beginning of the century is very blatant about this and says, oh, no, no, we can't allow suicide because that might be a family man who uh, would no longer support his wife and children. It would be terrible. But, you know, for these unproductive people, then we will allow it. Um, it's, it's very disturbing, but I feel like maybe I would like to know, because, it, you know, it sounds so obvious to me when we're talking, right? But then you go on to BBC Radio or whatever, and you get these really sad stories, and then you're the person who wants people to suffer. And you wouldn't subject even a dog to what you're trying to subject humans to. Well, yeah, because we don't value dogs' lives as much as we value a human's life. <laughs> That's a simple answer to that. Um, but I wondered, what is the best argument in favor of assisted suicide? Well, there's one that I actually accept. And that is that knowledge that you can painlessly kill yourself might be freeing. This is the only thing that I've ever accepted over the years. I remain open, and if they have any better arguments for it, I'm still open to those. But this is when I heard it when I went to speak at Euthanasia, uh, the Dutch uh, World Federation of Right to Die and everything else. It's a sort of a great death jamboree that, that occurred, and I was speaking at it. Um, and th that was the one idea. Is I thought, yes, if you could wear a suicide pill around your neck, but that is also a sign of alienation. What do you think about your fellow human beings if you're forced to do that? But they, the idea of a Dreon pill being legal, I think, is one that I am, I'm in favor of. I wrote, this, I wrote about this in my 2013 book and received more stick for that than anything else, which is the idea that, you know, why should we prevent human beings, adult, competent human beings, from the means of terminating their life at any particular time. That strikes me as, as wrong. And I've since discussed it with, with even the guy that invented the Drion pill. The Drion pill is a Dutch conception that people could all have at the end of life. But he agreed, no, we should all have that. And that way you don't have to have a doctor involved. You make the decision 100% yourself. And I think, well, you know, that's not a bad idea. I don't think it's, it's the sign of a healthy society. As I say, the idea of, of you know, you, you're behind enemy lines and you need a suicide pill. Now, there are people that will help you. 
But if that makes you feel somehow better about your situation, I'm not opposed to that. So I think that's their best idea. And that's the idea that you got the most sick for defending. What was the response? The problem is that um, it, when you uh, when I speak to people, most people who I discuss these kind of issues with, we're more in agreement, strangely enough, than those who are in favor of assisted suicide and euthanasia, given that they have no idea where to draw the line. That's their problem. But we have the problem that we're coming at this from various different perspectives. So somebody coming at it from a religious perspective is going to have a slightly different perspective than mine. And uh, the stick I got was, was, I remember one book review by a guy at Oxford uh, said, um, he, the first thing he brought up was, was uh, the story of eating babies. You know, that um, eight, 18th century, who was it? Samuel Pepys. It was one of his contemporaries who wrote a, a, a great story of, of look, this, the problem with famine is that people are unwilling to eat babies. And of course, he was, he was writing a parody. And so this review started off with, as if I was writing a parody, you know, as if my idea was as, as if it was the same as eating babies. So he was uh, not happy with that. But I got a lot of stick from that. You know, I don't care. I think it's a good, it's a consistent argument in that, you know, people should be free to do as much as possible. It's a consistent argument in the way that you can divide, for instance, voluntarily stopping eating and drinking from, um, other, from, from actively, uh, killing yourself. Those are two different moral universes, I think. And the difference is, is that the reason we respect somebody's, uh, decision to stop eating and drinking is because we think it's very wrong to force people to eat. That's just not on a competent adult. Yes. We force people who are not competent. I have forced my own children many times to eat, uh, <laughs> as no doubt every parent has. But the point is when somebody's an adult, they should be able to make these decisions about their life and it's an attack on their freedom. It's a sim. The other argument that, of course, came up is, well, what about an alcoholic? They're drinking themselves to death. Isn't that just suicide uh, in a long-term thing? Well, you say, yes, maybe, but the point is we can't do anything about it in the same way because it's not an active attempt to take one's life, and we have to respect the freedom of that person to do what they want, even if that includes drinking themselves to death. So there is a difference in between those things. You know, I just had an epiphany. Oh, good. That, that, that what you just said about having a pill available and people being against that, and I think a lot of people would be against that, um, that you just take whatever you want, tells me that this isn't really about autonomy at all. No. I mean, autonomy is the big thing that people will, will put up. Like, it's all about you and your, your choice. But then why not make it available to anyone to make that choice for themselves whenever they want? It's about a process and control and risk, the risk associated with the unpredictability of the behavior of populations. And in that sense, it is very much part of our kind of post-liberal bureaucratized moment where everything must be controlled, every emotion must be stated so that it can be put onto a script that is more predictable. It's not about helping people at all. I mean, I, and I mean, like, and I don't mean it's not about helping people at all in the sense that people who advocate for this don't really want to help people. I think they do. 
But I think it becomes powerful in a context in which there's an enormous push to control behavior. And anybody who listens to this podcast knows that this is my big thesis that I bang on and on and on about, is that there's a deep belief that most of the problems come down to people making incorrect choices. And then if we could just, you know, make people behave correctly and increase the predictability of human behavior, we'll be able to solve these problems. So I think it's, I think there might be some deep roots in kind of, I say post-liberal, but most people would understand it as kind of like neoliberal um, behavior management techniques. Do you think that's, again, am I being too cynical? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I think that it's a, a very useful way of, of understanding it because um, it is um, about control. It, it is about, like, for instance, the people who are disturbed by my idea of, well, let's just let everybody have a suicide pill are the people in favor of assisted suicide. And it's a great yeah. challenge to say to them is say, well, why aren't you, in, if you're in favor of autonomy, why don't you just uh, say that any competent adult can access a suicide pill? Even de facto people can already. In fact, you know, there has been a case, th there are common substances which will end your life very quickly if you need them. Um, but it's ever since his, you know, when it first appeared in history, autonomy was not there. Autonomy only dates from these arguments. There, there are periods when this became an, a discussion and periods when it didn't. So for instance, it, in 1870, it was, it was greeted by, you know, by a very, very uh, antipathetic group of mostly doctors. It began to be raised seriously in the early 1900s in Britain and in uh, the United States. There were legislative attempts. It was also in Germany. And it's in Germany during the 20s that it really took off. This is pre-Nazi, by the way. People don't understand this, but it's uh, before the Nazis uh, adopted this. And it, before, um, before 1970, when it, on, in the World War II, this put people off of euthanasia to a certain extent. The fact that the Nazis murdered 70,000 people, um, you know, uh, that were under the, the auspices of euthanasia, obviously put people off. And this is when the term assisted suicide was first brought up, it was 1950, first time I've ever seen it. And then, but nobody pays any attention. It's full of sort of population control cranks and a few wealthy people who had, you know, supported in the 1930s. And then in 1970, it becomes a big thing again. And that's what I think is a very interesting question. Why did it come then? But that in 1970 is the first time that they actually bring up the autonomy thing. Before that, it was simply called euthanasia. And then they decided, well, we don't want involuntary euthanasia. So it's voluntary euthanasia. But it was always done on the basis of compassion and utility. Those are the two constants that it's had ever since it was first raised. And that's what it really has today. And the autonomy thing is window dressing. That the autonomy thing isn't real because it's in the way you discussed medicalization and, and just a few minutes ago. It's the same idea that you're not really autonomous if you're asking the doctor to um, really uh, validate your own perspective on this. Uh, it means you need validation. That's not real autonomy at all. And th this has always been a spurious reason, autonomy and the whole discussion. When you were just explaining about autonomy and that it's you're actually asking the doctor to validate, I mean, that's heteronomy. 
that's the ideal subjectivity of the present. It's not autonomy, it's heteronomy. It's to seek out somebody else, not to trust your own judgment. That's not the autonomy. The prob problem that I find is that a lot of, for instance, disabled activists are on my side of this argument. And they say, no, we want relational autonomy. I'm thinking, no, we don't want that. And I have a big critique of relational autonomy. Um, but that's, this is one of the problems that is that uh, many people really believe in the relational autonomy. They don't understand autonomy in the, at least the Millsian sense that, that I try and present it as. All right, I've kept you for a really long time and, and I promised that I would, it would only be an hour, but um, I, we'll have to leave it there. But is there anything that I didn't ask that you wish I would have asked? I would just say that um, the, my general thesis in this term, what I say to people and what our entire campaign is going to say is think again, because this is the problem is that people think and then they don't really think it through. And I think it's a much more complicated issue than it's first presented as and that that's our mission of getting that across. That's great. All right. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me. It was so, so, so illumin illuminating. And I, I realized I want to write about this a little bit more. Well, I'm writing for Compact right now, but I was going to take the whole banality of evil, evil argument, but I think I might actually take the, the risks bit that we just discussed because that was quite interesting. Um, so I'll try to look up your stuff and I'll try to cite it and um, direct people over to, to what you're doing. Great. And the other thing is direct people towards my book. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I do talk about in the book is not only banality of evil, but I talk about suicide as action in the Arendtian sense. If you know the um, Arendtian action, idea of, of human action, which she deals mm -hmm. with, I think, in um, human condition uh, in that lovely chapter, the second chapter, I think. And she talks about action. And I think suicide is an action and it, it distinguishes it between that and assisted suicide, which is of course, as we've been discussing a bureaucratic process. Um, mm. so I, I don't know whether that's of interest, but just go oh, to the suicide yes. chapter of my book. It's called assisted suicide, the liberal humanist case against legalization. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley 